0: Today on Soundtrack Alley, I'll be discussing Alien 3 with the original score by Elliot Goldenthal. I'll discuss the history of the incredibly controversial film, as well as the use of practical effects throughout the film. I'll discuss at length the elements of the score that stand out to me, so sit back and relax as the show begins now. I am your host, Randy Andrews. Welcome to Soundtrack Alley. Uh, The previous two episodes that have dealt with Alien and Aliens has been produced over on Cinematic Sound Radio um, as Soundtrack Alley, but uh, now uh, Soundtrack Alley over there is known as the Essential Soundtracks. I'm doing this one solo, so with Alien 3 Let's get into it. My first experience with this movie was way later than when it was released. I can see why it was unliked by many fans of the franchise. I watched it on the Sci Fi channel, and it wasn't until later that I saw the uncut version. This film was awkward to me and created elements from the first film for me, like along with isolation, alone moments. And to me, the editing of the voices was very quiet. You have to raise the volume of the film just to hear people talk. Anyway, let's get into discussing more of the film at length. At one point, David Fincher was denied permission by the film's producers to shoot a crucial scene in the infirmary between Ripley and the alien, where the latter menacingly closes in on Ripley. Against orders, Fincher grabbed Sigourney Weaver, a camera, and shot the scene anyway, This scene not only appears in the final cut, but also featured prominently in trailers, and to many, is regarded as the most iconic shot. The film's production process was so chaotic, and its reception by fans and critics so unfavorable that it nearly ended David Fincher's career before he ever had a chance to gain momentum as a director. But two things ended up saving Fincher from permanent movie jail. The first was that Sigourney Weaver publicly and often angrily sided with Fincher against 20th Century Fox, telling journalists that the studio had made decisions that resulted in an impossible situation for the young director, and that he would have had an excellent career if given further chances. The other thing was that producer Arnold Kopelson knew and didn't respect the management at Fox and that was part of the process where he ultimately offered Fincher a new project a few years later. That project was seven, and its massive success reignited Fincher's career, making him the one of the most respectful directors of his time. Now, the original alien director of Ridley Scott had turned down the chance to direct, and Ridley and later Rennie Harlan Both thought the third film should explore the origin of the xenomorph species. This concept was deemed too expensive by David Giller and Walter Hill, especially most special effects at the time had to be done practically instead of by a computer-generated image. So Scott declined to return, and Harlan later quit the film because he found the alternate concepts to be too repetitive. So Scott ultimately got his wish with the movie Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Now, there was $7 million that had been spent on the sets that were never used thanks to the ever-changing script before the film ever got started. With the deadline looming, uh, director David Fincher called Rex Pickett as a writer to discuss his process and progress on the script. He would let the phone ring twice Hang up and call again, so that Pickett knew it was Fincher and not the studio harassing him with more demands for changes. During filming, the script was still constantly being rewritten, with new versions faxed to the studio on a nearly daily basis. The cast and crew often filmed a scene, learned the next day that it had already been scrapped. Michael Bean uh, stated in an interview that he was deeply hurt and he wasn't asked to return as Dwayne Hicks, uh, his character from Aliens, but uh, the fact that Hicks is immediately killed off after escaping the other survivors in the previous movie, he stated that he didn't mind Hicks dying per se, but objected to the careless way that they did it in the film. So that, you know, that makes sense. Um, David Fincher actually disowned the film, stating in an interview... I had to work on it for two years, got fired off of it three times, and had to fight for every single thing. No one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates it more than me. He stated constant studio interference during production and actually walked out of the studio, rejected his initial cut, and ordered extensive reshoots. He wasn't even involved in the final cut, but his initial rough cut later became the basis for the assembly cut a longer version of the film released on DVD in 2003 and on Blu-ray in 2010. Um, When he did the assembly cut, we find the uh, idea uh, that initially when you see the film, a lot of times you will see a version of the film where the alien exits an ox. And in reality, the alien is supposed to exit a dog, which is more visceral and violent and grotesque. Uh, But that's how the alien is perceived anyway in the context of being more dog-like, and it wouldn't be moving slow like an ox. So it was a rather odd thing to have it exit. Um, But as we know... Uh, We got that in a lot of ways. Um, Lance Henriksen only agreed to reprise his role as bishop as a personal favor to Walter Hill. To this day, Henriksen has said that he dislikes the film for its nihilistic themes, although he had a lot more fun making it, which makes sense. And uh, making the convicts bald-headed during the, the movie it was due to a lice problem, was David Fincher's idea. When he told Sigourney Weaver this during the first meeting, she immediately thought it was great and a bold idea. When Fincher asked how she felt about shaving her head for the role, she jokingly replied, it's fine with me only as long as I get more money. (laughs) So it was a really fun thing to be able to do that. And there was so much uh, things going back and forth with, so many different elements. Um, William Gibson wrote a very early script treatment, and William Gibson, as we know, is a highly uh, sought-after science fiction writer, Um, and he had this idea from the producers, David Giller and Walter Hill, and it was initially intended as a first of a two-parter to be shot back-to-back, as Sigourney Weaver's involvement was in question, and Ripley would spend most of the time in a coma. The main focus of the story was on Hicks and Bishop, two characters from Aliens, as they're brought to a deep space station where scientists have begun experimenting on alien cell samples with devastating consequences. When a dangerous alien-human hybrid gets loose inside the station, Hicks launches the unconscious Ripley into a lifeboat safely into space, setting up the fourth movie, before he and Bishop lead an evacuation of the station. Many consider this to be a much superior script. However, Giller and Hill had hoped for more inventive ideas in one another draft. Gibson refused, stating that he didn't want to waste more of his time and had other commitments. Giller and Hill had then canceled the second part, focusing on one movie instead. The only carryover of this original script is the barcodes on the back of the convict's necks and a relatively lack of weapons on the station and the appearance of the company, scientists. So, personally, I like William Gibson's idea. Um, his script seemed to have some really awesome action uh, to the, the whole story. Now, for the creation of the Alien quadrilogy, um, there was special editions of the movie, and David Fincher um, had the olive branch giving him free reign to assemble and comment on his own director's cut of Alien 3. So Fincher declined that offer, being the only one of the four Alien directors to refuse to have anything to do with the project, stating that all the creative differences and studio interference he had to endure during production made the project stray too far from his preferred version. So, as such, even with additional material, there could never be a version he could call a director's cut. Due to this, the extended version of Alien 3 was made without his involvement, but since it was based on an earlier work print, which he himself had helped assemble, it was dubbed the assembly cut. And so... You know, there were so many cuts and recuts uh, for the film. And one thing I found really cool for some of the practical effects was the crane that lifts the crashed EEV out of the water to dry land is a miniature built using the cannibalized parts from a Star Wars X-Wing fighter model kit. The horizontal part of the crane actually consists of the fuselage of an X-Wing. The two people standing on top of the miniature EEV are simply static cardboard cutouts dressed with pieces of cloth that were made to move in the wind to simulate silhouettes of real people wearing thick coats. Cinematographer Alex Thompson replaced Jordan Cronenwell after only four shooting days because his Parkinson's disease started to affect the work pace it would claim his life five years later. Though Cronenwealth uh, insisted that he was well enough to make make it to the end of production, David Fincher supported him. Line producer forced uh, Cronenwealth off the film, largely because he had lost his own father to the same illness. So in the end, he received a special thank you in the end credits. So I thought that was really uh, good of Fincher to be able to do that. Um, even the damages that were inflicted on Bishop were too severe to have Lance Henriksen work a prosthetic head while hiding under a table. So the filmmakers ended up having an android played by, well, an android. A mechanical copy of Henriksen's likeness was used in this movie for the portrayal of the Solico Bishop. At the time, it was the... it was. One of the most sophisticated and state-of-the-art motion-controlled puppets ever used in a movie. I think that's phenomenal. It's just so cool. And once again, here's something that makes it very interesting. The creature that the alien impregnates was originally an ox, but this was eventually changed to a Rottweiler dog uh, during a studio-mandated reshoot. Because... The ox was cumbersome and was seen as somewhat incongruous with place on the film environment. This sequence was later restored for the extended assembly cut where all the scenes featuring the dog were removed. However, in the Blu-ray edition of this version, Prisoner Murphy can still be heard calling for the dog in one scene. So you never really get to see the cut with the dog which is sad because I would have kind of wanted to see that. Um, So Sigourney Weaver had stated that she has nothing but respect for David Fincher's creative vision and style and acknowledged the extreme studio interference that he was under worked against the film. Her Her first day of shooting involved her lying naked on a bed covered by a sheet, half blind from a contact lens to simulate a bloodshot eye while Fincher sprinkled lice over her face that crawled into her eyes and ear. She later stated that she had endured harsh conditions and working with gorillas during the filming of Gorillas in the Mist. This was the first time that she nearly freaked out with a director. Fincher made up later with the autopsy scene, where he gained her trust by guiding her through an emotional performance. And that's pretty cool of him to be able to actually uh, deal with that. And some of the things that uh, were unique is that David Fincher wanted the alien to be more like a beast um, rather than have a humanoid posture, uh, like what H.R. Geiger had um, illustrated. His revisions included longer legs and thinner Legs, um, fuller lips, and the removal pipes around the spine. and And so like there was a, a sharp alien tongue in place of the secondary jaws. They still kept most of the design from Geiger, uh, but it was more of a animalistic uh, alien. Uh, the novelist Alan Dean Foster, who wrote the novelization of the film, Objected to the storyline, most specifically to the demise of Newton and Hicks, he found Newt's death to be so tasteless and pointless that his initial draft of the novel had Newt's pod malfunction, so that she survived but had to remain in cryosleep sleep until the pod could be repaired. However, the studio rejected this, forcing Foster to keep his adaption consistent to the film. For this reason, the author declined to write any other adaptation of the franchise, which makes total sense. Now, here's something that takes note in regard to the Dark Horse comics. The series of Alien comics published were set after the events of Aliens, and it featured an adult Newt returning to space with a shell-shocked Hicks to stop the retrieval of an alien specimen by the Weyland-Yutani Corporation. The books were republished to accommodate the film, uh, with Newt renamed Billy, and the production effectively shut down for three months while the script was undergoing rewrites, which I found to be very, very interesting. And the film, of course, it takes place in 2179, so it's definitely a futuristic film. Paul McGann uh, went on to play a role as Doctor Who in the movie in 1996. And he returned in the role years later to be regenerated into the War Doctor, played by John Hurt. Hurt was given birth to to the first alien creature in 1979. Six ways to Kevin Bacon, I tell ya. So next, let's get into some of the soundtrack talk. For me, uh, the soundtrack is really a quiet, moody, haunting score that not only rather expertly captured the tone and the ideation that stems from the alien as a concept, but one that also more than met the high bar set by the iconic prior compositions for the franchise and also went on to be one of Goldsmith's best scores all around or Goldenthal, not Goldsmith. We're talking Goldenthal here. So with all of that of the above in mind. Now on Alien Day, which is 2604, in 2018, La La Land Records debuted the exquisitely expanded and remastered two-CD set for Alien 3, one that features the score in its entirety as heard in the film. Given that it is essentially down now the definitive method of listening to Goldenthal's brilliant works for the film, it is that which we'll be listening to in our soundtrack analysis today. Now, the 20th Century Fox trademark main title opens the album, and already we're off to a great start. We get the 20th Century Fox logo music start to play, but then Goldenthal then intriguingly leaves a note off its end, closing the logo music on a dramatically unfinished, haunting, unnerving note that pretty much instantly sets the unsettling tone to start off the score. Now, there are ominous strings uh, that open the main title section, with the instrumentation hearkening all the way back to the nerve-wracking few seconds of Jerry Goldsmith's main title piece for the first Alien film, before brass then breaks through the tension following swiftly by high-pitched, eerie vocals and tense strings. This chilling atmosphere continues for a few further ominous minutes with percussion occasionally rumbling through the background until the brass starts to pick up the pace and the drums enter action territory for a minute of anxious ferocity until the cue that ends on the same quiet, worried vocals it started with. So overall, it's just under five minutes, and Goldenthal pretty much completely wins me over here as a composer for the third Alien film. This main title just might be the eeriest of the three so far, not to mention how brilliantly It captures the quietly haunting atmosphere of the alien franchise. It's a score that assaults your senses, batters your intellect, and offers a relentless cacophony of sound that textures that range from the operatically beautiful to almost unbearingly bleak. This is a score that virtually has no warmth and virtually no hope. It dwells in the darkest corners of the orchestra, growling and snarling only to raise its voice when it wants to chase you and rip your head off. The score does contain themes, but Goldenthal dissects them constantly, offering brief glimpses and tiny illusions for almost an hour until finally resolving them in the devastating finale. So the opening cue, Agnes Day, is in many ways a perfect encapsulation of the score. It combines the tones of the bone-chillingly cold orchestra and a desolate and electronics with the sound of the solo choir boy, Nick-nackily singing in Latin echoing through the darkness. The score's main theme is introduced here halfway through the cue, carried mostly by strings, but almost unrecognizable before it's swallowed up by the first appearance of the skittering, clattering percussion ideas that come to represent the alien itself. I truly believe that this is really a haunting score. Um, There's some other elements of the score that we won't discuss on the podcast today, but in context, the... uh, Litur, liturgical, choir represents the religious aspect of the story, specifically the fact that the inmates of the prison colony have strongly turned to a religion as a way of controlling the chromes, chromosomal urges for antisocial behavior that landed them in prison in the first place. As the score develops. These ideas come to illustrate the notion of noble self-sacrifice. The prisoners embody as one, then another, then another, giving themselves over to the alien in order to save Ripley. Now, bait and switch is the first of the score's intense action sequences, a frequency of tremolo strings pitched against the rattling alien percussion abstract woodwind textures, and perhaps the score's defining idea, the incredible blaring, pitch-bending brass that would again go to be another defining characteristic of Goldenthal's action writing on dozens of subsequent works. Now, there there is a lot that we could really discuss in regard to this, but we're not going to. Um, There's so much that I could cover in regard to the various cues that are on this album, but we're going to focus on a key element of a few of these cues and really stick to that. We've already discussed the alien version of the main title sequences. When listening to the opening cue again, it begins traditionally, then turns dark and brooding. But with the organic sounds of the bells and then the haunting chorus that opens up, the danger of what is happening through the ship, and then the utter isolation of where the transport is, and how it begins a road of hellish nightmare for those inhabiting the prison. I found the electronics to really open up the visceral nature of the alien world, but also the utter violence that will ensue through the film. Goldenthal really gives us some evidence of foreshadowing of what is to come next. Let's go ahead and play that cue. The next piece that I'd like to discuss is called Wreckage and Rape. One thing that I've learned from this cue is how utterly it turns in the middle of, from examining the wreckage to one of violence and helplessness. Ripley is assaulted by the prisoners, and it's a very dangerous and disturbing scene. Very violent, but also Goldenthal really represents it well with the echoes and tonal shifts, even with the heavy guitar and to show the utter acid-like results from what a rape would be. It's one of brilliance and can make you shudder all at the same time. Let's hear this haunting piece. Now, earlier on, I had discussed this cue at length, but the bait and chase, uh, it's the extended version, and this cue is utterly terrifying. The use of percussion and violin show the animal nature of the alien. You can hear the little skitters of the alien or what it would sound like and the chaos booming through the horns and how chaotic it is. It reminds me of the chaotic nature of the phantoms, from spirits within. This cue has some intense echo, but also some underlying elements of repeating pattern that increases the need for resolution. That is the whole purpose of the cue, though. To trap the alien, to destroy it, and to be safe once again. So really, it's an amazing piece of music. Let's go ahead and play it. The next is called, Gotcha, and Hello, I Must Be Going. This cue really gave me goosebumps. Not in a good way. It was terrifying, and the horns and percussion worked alongside each other to create sort of a conversation between that of the alien and what was going on around him. We could hear the voice, the animal sound to the alien. Very disturbing, but also... Really well executed for the cue that it is. Listen carefully. this last cue that we're going to play on the show is called adiago uh adego that's what it is it's adego um this cue really closes up everything it's sad somber alone the horns really play on the emotion of the characters involved especially ripley who has an alien queen that comes out in the end, just to be incinerated. It's a fitting end to Ripley. She has had enough with the alien, with the company, her hand dealt very wrong and being manipulated. She's ready for it to be over. This gives us that resolution, that closure that we've been searching for. It's wonderful how simplistic the cue is, and how isolating, and also how calming the resolution to the cue really hits us. So in all reality, I really want to thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley today. Next time, when this podcast airs over on Cinematic Sound Radio, I'm hoping that we'll be able to discuss the film Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. It's another masterpiece by Elliot Goldenthal. And this will be our first for animation over on there. I think it'll be a good addition to the podcast. And um, we can really appreciate that. Now, Eric would love for me to gush about the Patreon over on Cinematic Sound. If you haven't been a Patreon of Cinematic Sound Radio, I urge you to go over there, check it out, to really join and be a part of that community. There's so much that you can contribute to the uh, annual Christmas show, the uh, Patreon request shows. Those are really fun because you get uh, personal letters that fans have written to Eric, to the crew of Cinematic Sound Radio. And uh, it gives us some really inner thoughts uh, to some of the music that they love. So I urge you to be able to do that. I'd also like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing the Soundtrack Alley theme music. You can find his work through Xanderscores.com. You can also find the podcast as the essential soundtracks over on cinematicsound.net. And also find my other podcast called Anime Spectacular, with some new material, truly coming soon. It's been a rough year for me, but I've got some things in the works that I'm hoping to have a better schedule to be more consistent. So let's go ahead and listen to Adeigio. And until next time, enjoy listening to any film music you can and happy listening. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com.